Father, you said the word of God became flesh. Jesus, you tabernacled among us. You were the light of the world, and, and you tell us that the light came into the darkness, but the darkness could not understand it. And so, Father, you've given us the Holy Spirit. And so through the power of the Spirit, and ask in Jesus' name, you'd help us to see into the depths of your word, not just prohibitions, but rather the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit, the beauty of delighting in you. Father, would you teach us? And Lord, in teaching us, would our hearts uh, come alive uh, to who we are in you and how you've called us to live? Father, thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. So I did forget something. So next week, we're actually going to be sharing with you when we're going to two services. And so next week, so come next week, and we'll be sharing those details and how God is leading us forward. Hey, let me also brag on Stephen for just a moment. You know, one of the things I love about Stephen is he has the heart of an evangelist. Now, I'm more of a discipler and a teacher, and you always need that person that has that evangelistic heart that loves the community, loves the people, and can connect the gospel to the community in which we live. Well, today, from 4 to 8, he's going to be over at Little Bear. Now, the reason he's going to be over at Little Bear is not to gather at a bar, not to drink beer, but rather as a bridge to our community. One of the things that opens doors is music. And one of the ways that Stephen has the gift of ministering, if you do not know his past, you should discover a few things about him. But he has a tremendous gift and connection to allow other people to really sense God's presence. I think even in a place like Little Bear, I think the presence of God will be there. So pray for him today. I think when you do four hours of music, that's a lot to remember. And so more than a sermon, so would you pray for him? And also, if you want to gather there from four to eight today, you could pray and just be a presence there. Uh, maybe to love the people that God uh, may bring uh, at that gathering. You with me? That's exciting. Hey, let's jump in just quickly today. We now have a ton of time to jump into this text, but um, what it's doing in, in Psalm 119, and what's kind of interesting, first of all, as we jump in, you know, most of the Psalms are about meditation, contemplation, maybe self-reflection. And I think in a community like Evergreen, they like terms like meditation, contemplation, self-reflection. You know, those are terms that make sense, terms that they can resonate with. And they'd say the life of self-understanding and reflection and meditation is a healthy life. Now, the word that most people in our community do not like is what Psalm 119 is about. And that word is obedience. Yeah. So while meditation is popular, obedience is not. Because many people will say, and we'll get into this as quickly as we can, I'm not going to submit myself to any other authority but my own. That's a popular belief. Now, we're going to discover, hopefully as much as we can, why that's a false understanding of how the heart works. But second, that all of us in many ways submit ourselves to many exterior forces of authority, whether it's teachings or influences of others. But what Psalm 119 is saying is that to truly be blessed by God to truly know God, to experience God, it begins by submitting ourselves under the authority of God's word. That we cannot know God unless we allow him to reveal himself. Now, that just makes sense to me. I can't know you unless you reveal yourself, unless you make yourself known. If I project on you who I want you to be, not who you are, that's not a relationship. You see, relationships say, no, 
Relationships say yes. Relationships show desires, passions. You get to know someone's heart. And see, in God's word, God reveals his heart, his desire for us. And so in verses one through 16, what we see are two divisions. In verses one through eight, we discover what the word of God is. And then in verses nine through 16, we discover how the word of God works. So first of all, what the word of God is, verses one through eight, and then second, how the word of God works. So let's jump into that. And so in verses one through eight, there are, I think, three words that stand out to me as I was studying this week that capture what the Bible is. And those words are summarized with the words in verse one, law, then verse four, precepts, and then finally in verse eight, statutes. Now, there's more here than that, but God's word is his law. It's his precepts and his statutes. So look at verse one. Again, it says, blessed are those whose way is blameless. Then he says, who walk in the law of the Lord. So the psalmist is saying all of God's word is law. Now, that seems a little strange if you know the Bible. If you don't know, I'll let you know. The first five books of the Bible are called law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are called the Torah, which means law. So there's a section of the Bible that's actually referred to as the law. And there are other sections that are prophets or wisdom literature. There are sections that are about history and some that are narrative form. So when the psalmist is saying, your word is law, in a sense it's saying, all of your word is law. You know, Jesus, if you read in John 15, he actually quotes one of the psalms. And he calls it God's law. That even though the Psalms is poetry, it's prayers, when Jesus was reading the Psalms, he said, no, the Psalms are God's law. Now, what does that mean? Here's the implication. It means simply that all of God's word is authoritative. That it has authority over our lives. And it really to know God, to be blessed by God, means to submit ourselves under the power and the authority of the word of God. That his his word is law. And see, law is not law just because you believe it's law. It's more law like physics. Physics is law because it's, it's law. You can ignore it, and it's okay to ignore it. You can disbelieve it. You can say the earth is flat, but the reality is it's still law. It's still present whether we believe it or not. And so it's saying all of God's word is it's authoritative. Now, the second word I want to pick up is actually found in verse 4. And he says, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Now, precepts in some ways sounds like prescription because precepts means wisdom. To have a precept is to have a prescription for life, a way of living life. Now, imagine it this way. I know winter's coming. You probably got to get your vehicles ready. If you go to your mechanic and your mechanic says, you know, Jason, you got to get some new tires. Listen, those tires work well when you're down in Texas, in Dallas, this isn't Dallas. Instead, you're going to need some snow tires. And I can tell your oil needs to be changed. You need to top off that antifreeze. It's going to be getting cold. If you don't top that antifreeze off, everything's going to freeze up. You need to make those decisions. You need to change. You need to follow those rules. Now, he's not saying that to give me busy work, right? He's not saying, hey, put on tires because you've got nothing to do. He's not making arbitrary rules. Rather, what he's saying is to keep the health of your car. This is the wisdom you need to follow. Now, I can say I don't believe in it. I can say I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to say you're foolish. But the reality is eventually I'm going to crash. Eventually my car is going to seize up. The cold's going to overtake it. Same thing happens when we go to the doctor. 
How many times have you heard, for some of you, you need to, you need to lose some weight? You need to lower your cholesterol. You need to stop eating this and start eating this. Now, is that doctor trying to take the joy out of life? <laughs> it's like, yes, I love ice cream, right? No, those are precepts. They're prescriptions. You can ignore them. You can say, I don't believe in them. I don't think it's helpful. It's not busy work. Rather, it's what leads to life. When it says, thy word is a precept, what it's saying is it's true to life. And when you find yourself under the authority of Scripture, it actually, we're going to talk about this, brings freedom. You shall know the truth. And what he's going to say is the truth will set you free, meaning the truth corresponds to who you are. It corresponds to how you're created, like my mechanic understands my car, and he corresponds his instructions to what my car needs. Likewise, God's word is wisdom. And then finally, look down at verse 8, and he says, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now, when he says utterly forsake me, it's a negative way of saying a positive reality. That when we're under God's law, his precepts and his statutes, the purpose of that is not to know God, but to know God. That we read the Bible not to get information about, we read the Bible to know the God of the Bible. For the word of the Lord comes from the Lord of the word. And we read scripture to experience who he is, his self-revelation. Now, what's a statute? Well, a statute sounds like the English word statue, which means permanence. It's the idea that it's relevant and it's permanent. You ready? A lot of people don't like this. Regardless of the cultural moment that you're in. You know, every culture, go watch this, go all the way back. Every culture hates something about this book. All of them do. Now, the stuff that people hate in the past, go back to Vikings, right? They hated forgiveness, Hated that. Con- we love that. We're like reconciliation, forgiveness, love. That's great. You see, in, in the past, Scripture, it, it, it convicted people in different ways depending on when they lived. Or think back 50 years ago, 60 years, 70 years ago. I don't know. You go back to the 1950s, pick up a magazine. You're going to laugh at the pictures you see. Are you with me? Certainly the women are going to go, What? You're going to see a lot, of, a, a lot of pictures of a woman just dressed out, decked out. She's got pearls. She's also got an apron, and she's in the kitchen. Now, that's a value, right? It's funny. Some are like, what? You got to pick it up. That's a value that was present in the 1950s. Now, we look at that and say, that's wrong. Well, what are our kids going to pick? What are our grandkids, our great-grandkids? What, imagine 70 years from now, they pick up our magazine. And they see a woman's body selling everything from cars to deodorant. What are they going to see? What values are they going to look at? So you guys were ridiculous. I can't believe that you believe that. Because, see, God's word is not, it's not beholden to the culture. It, the culture doesn't judge it. Rather, it needs, it's God's word that judges the culture. And so when we submit ourselves to God's law, to his wisdom, to his statutes, he's saying the reason we do that is so that we might know him. Now, here's the challenge, okay? The challenge is, I know there's people out there, and again, they will say, I must be my own spiritual authority. It's dangerous to submit yourself under any other kind of teaching or any set of rules. And, And in some sense, I'd say, yeah, you need to be careful. You need to be careful when someone comes in and says, this is how you do it, right? You need to check their character. Well, the character of God is revealed in Jesus, and the character of Jesus is revealed in the cross, 
And if the cross means that his death becomes my life, you can trust a God who's generous, filled with mercy and grace, and dies for us so that we might have life. That's the character of the God that wrote the Scriptures. And yet people will say, and if you've looked at the research, the polls, they will tell you, do not trust in a book, do not trust in a set of teachings. I and I alone must determine what is right or wrong for myself. I have to be the spiritual authority in my life. And that spiritual authority doesn't come from the outside. It's not an objective reality that comes from the outside and speaks into my life. Rather, spiritual authority has to come from the inside. It's subjective, and therefore, I am always in control. Now, that's the common belief in our culture. Now, what I want to do just quickly is to show you why that's foolish and why it's naive to say, I and I alone determine the spiritual authority of my life. Because the first thing he's going to show us in verse 9, and so pick it up in verse 9, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Now, again, the word way doesn't just simply mean direction or road. It's a picture of a lifestyle. How can we keep our lifestyle? How can we keep the direction of life pure? And the answer is by guarding it. And when something's being guarded, it's being protected, but someone is also taking authority over it and determining how it's going to be kept and how it's going to be protected. So he's saying God's word guards our life. You could say God's word protects the heart. That the Bible is not just about prohibition. It's not about this is good and this is bad, but it's actually effectual. Now, what that word means is that it produces what it describes. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's not just saying here's what's good and here's what's bad, but rather there's a power behind it, a person, the Holy Spirit, that brings to mind what Jesus taught. Now, when the Holy Spirit brings to mind what Jesus taught, when Jesus said the truth will set you free, he's talking about the truth you know. And again, not just the truth we understand, but the truth that has captured us. That when the Holy Spirit brings to mind the truth of God, that truth becomes effectual. That as we get into God's word and we start to describe and read passages about God's love, we start to desire God's love. That as we read passages that say we need to address the root of bitterness. And when you think of a root of bitterness, no one can stick a root in your life. No, rather, the root is something you allow to grow. And it grows into a plant. And that plant of bitterness begins to take over life because you've allowed it to rest there. And so Scripture is saying you've got to address those things. That God is, is he's speaking to us. He's directing us. And he's saying if the Word of God isn't guarding your life, then some other authority will. The naivete of thinking that I am my own spiritual authority doesn't understand the heart. You know, if you go back even centuries, uh, decades, whatever, further than, I guess, decades is different, but anyway. Go back uh, before the time of Jesus and go to the, some of the Greek philosophers. And they say the exact same thing, that our authority doesn't just come from ourselves, but rather it comes from the things that we trust in. I'm trying to find this quote. One Greek philosopher said it this way. He said, no one is truly free. They're a slave to wealth, fortune, the law, or other people restraining them from acting according to their will. Now, 500 years before the time of Christ, he's just a philosopher saying, look at the life of a human being. 
We're not free to act however we want, but rather our desires get fixed on something. And if our desires are fixed on wealth, then we're going to obey the laws of wealth. If our desires get fixed on the approval of others, then that approval becomes like a law in our life that we begin to obey. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 said it this way. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. That when we cease to worship God, it doesn't mean we no longer worship, but rather our heart will reject the Creator and find something in creation to worship. And whatever we worship will become an authority over our lives. Jesus said it like this, hey, you can't serve two masters, right? You're going to love one, hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This idea that we alone determine the spiritual authority, the direction of our lives is, is naive because all of us set our heart on something. Whatever we set our heart on, it's going to determine the direction of our lives. And the psalmist is saying, set your heart on God's word. Allow God's character to begin to direct and to guard your life. And then secondly, in in verse 10, he captures it different. Instead of just guarding our life, he says that the word of God should direct our life. Again, he says, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Now, to wander means to go astray. But the image of that language is the idea of simply picking up our feet in the current of life, in the current of our culture, and allowing it to take us where we want, wherever it wants to go. It's the idea of a, a, a sailboat that's on the, maybe in the middle of the lake. It's got no sail. It's got no anchor. And it's just basically sitting there open to the currents of the wind. That sometimes our hearts are prone to wander. And typically, we wander wherever we hear the voices of our culture telling us to go. And he's saying God's word directs. It it guides the heart. It shows us the path that God wants us to go. Jesus again said it this way in John 8, 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, here's what's surprising. Something I wrestled with in the beginning when I thought about that, truth is like law. Because truth is reality, and you cannot push up against reality because it's just true. It's, it's a law in your life. But how can law and freedom interact? Because most people, I think, in our culture think to truly be free means to have no law. Because think about our country, our nation. What did we do? How did we become independent? By kicking out the law, kicking out the authorities. Now we established another law in its place, but often as Americans, we think of freedom as the absence of restriction. I want to do what I want, when I want, and how I want. But Jesus is saying the truth, the law, shall set you free. Now, what does that mean? It means that freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but just like with my car or with our body, freedom is the presence of the right restrictions, the restrictions that bring life. Freedom is the presence of the right restrictions, the restrictions that actually bring life. Now, if you come to our house and maybe you got some little ones and you, uh, we have dinner together and it starts to get, the sun starts to go down, it's starting to get dark, one of the things my, maybe I love to do, my kids may not as much, is we have these uh, copters and we'll get these copters out when the sun goes down. And they're not helicopters, they're really just a stick with some wings and a light. 
and this stick with the wings and light, you have to take the wings and bend them in just the right direction. And often some kids will come over, and we've got tons of these things. They buy them for like a nickel a piece, and we'll give them out. And all these kids will go outside, and they'll start shooting them in the air because, you know, kid wants to take it out, put on that rubber band, and just start firing it into the air. The problem is if you don't bend the wings, and if you don't bend them in the right direction, it's, it's not going to soar. It's either going to just come crashing to the ground, or it's going to fly off in the wrong direction. Instead, you have to bend the wings just right. Now, with kids, they don't want to follow directions. And sometimes the adults, you know, don't want to follow directions. And they'll say, no, I want to do it my way. I don't want to bend the wings according to the crease or bend it just in the right direction with the right kind. I want to, I want to be unique. You know, I want to be a snowflake. And so they fire this thing up in the air. And instead of it coming down in these beautiful colors and with this rotation of, of color, rather, it just comes crashing to the ground or it goes off in a direction and you can't find it later on. Because, see, those wings require the right kind of law that allow it to, to actually operate. And what he's saying is God's law is that air that gives us freedom. It allows us to live as God has designed us to live according to our nature. Freedom is not the absence of restriction. It's the presence of the right restrictions. Same thing is true in marriage. You cannot be in love without law. Now, what does that mean? You have to know her heart. If you don't, you will not have love. You will not have romance, intimacy. You will not have a marriage. Because, see, each one of us have desires. We have likes and dislikes. All of those things reveal who we are. And if you ignore that, you're not going to have a relationship because all good relationships come with law. And when we ignore the law, it's a breakdown in relationship. What he's saying when he's talking about the Word of God directing us is we are truly free when we submit ourselves to the authority of God's word because his word, his word connects to who we are and how we were created to be. And then finally, in verse 11 through 16, in verse 11 through 16, he says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, some translations will capture, I've hidden your word in, in my heart that I may not sin against you. To store up, to hide, means to make something a part of yourself. Now, how do you take the word and make it a part of yourself? Well, just quickly in verses uh, 11 all the way down to verse 16, he's telling us, this is how you hide God's word. And he's going to say, teach me. Then he's going to say, I'm going to declare it. He'll say, I delight in it. I meditate on it. I will not forget it. How do you make the word of God alive in your life? You've got to study it. But studying it's not enough. You've got to start declaring it. You've got to start singing it. You've got to start talking about it. And not only just talking about it, then he says you've got to delight in it. And not just delight in it, you've got to meditate on it. And then do not forget it, remember it. You know what he's describing is the pattern of a good relationship. I know when I first met my wife and we started to get to know each other, I don't know about you, but when you meet that person and you start falling in love, it's like you're studying each other. What are her likes and dislikes? And you're looking at every little detail, right? Maybe what they wear, uh, what they buy when, they get, when you go out to dinner, or, or what they have in their car. You just, you're kind of looking around. You're picking up every little detail to discover what she's about. You're studying. You're picking up aspects of, of who they are. And those aspects, you begin to take in. And, and not only do you take them in, because after that first date, I imagine you come home to your buddies, and what do you do? You start declaring it. Man, she's amazing. 
wow, we had a fantastic time. She is beautiful. She is, I, I don't even know what to say. And then what happens at night? You're, you're lying on your bed and you start meditating. You're delighting. Wow, she's, I can't believe, do you think she likes me? You know, and it's all that, that self-talk that's happening. And then you're remembering it. See, what he's talking about is not knowing God in the sense of the intellect. Rather, he's talking in delight. I delight in you, God, in more than in riches. I delight in you more than in the things in life that people say have value. I've started to put my value in you. You know, church, how do we do that? You see, we, we can't do that unless we see the value that God has seen in us through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, on the cross, more than anything else, Jesus said, I'm going to be obedient to the Father. And the reason I'm going to be obedient is not so that I might get something from God, but so that we might have God. And Jesus Christ, who is in very nature God, became a man, and he was obedient unto death on a cross. Why? So that we might know the name that is above all names, that the name of Jesus we will confess, we will bow, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of God the Father. See, Jesus Christ was obedient for the Father because he treasured us. And when you see Jesus being obedient unto death for us so that through faith we could trust him, we can now be obedient to God. Because we know that if he treasured us to that degree to send his son, then he is worth treasuring with our entire lives, with our whole heart, to surrendering our hearts to his law, to his wisdom, and to his statutes. Hey, today as we, as we close, we're gonna celebrate communion. And as we celebrate communion, we recognize that this is, this is an opportunity to remember what Jesus Christ has done. That Jesus said, uh, take this bread. And he broke that bread and he says, this bread represents my broken body, which was, was broken for you. And we are now to do this in remembrance of him. But he also took a cup and he said, and interestingly, this, this cup, it's the new covenant. And a covenant means the new establishment of a relationship. It's a new promise that God's not going to forsake us or leave us. No, he died for us. And now we're accepted, not based on what we've done, but what, Je what Jesus Christ has done. And that cup represents a new standard by which we are accepted. And so if you've believed in Jesus Christ, I want you to know the table is open for you. I'm going to ask those they're going to help us serve communion to come up to the front. Now, when you come up to the front, they're going to say, this is Christ's body, which is broken for you. And they will say, this is Christ's blood, which is shed for you. Well, the way we celebrate communion here is by a process called intinction, which means we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, recognizing and remembering what Christ has done. And we want you to do that when it's time for you. There's places in the back. We have two stations in the back, and we'll have five stations up in the front. And so when you're ready and when the Lord leads you, would you come forward and celebrate with us? Let me pray, and we'll begin to celebrate what God has done. Father, you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. And you told us that salvation, it's a gift of grace. It's not because we've done it right. It's not because of work, so that we can't boast in ourselves today that our morality and our goodness comes from us. No, Lord, it comes from your grace and your love and your forgiveness. And so, Lord, remembering that, we celebrate that we are accepted and adopted as the children of God, Lord Jesus, because of what you've done for us. May we celebrate that together today. 
in a way that allows us to submit to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.